Good evening, good evening. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20 will be our focus this evening. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Uh, I'm glad Matt actually made a slip there and said this morning, I was wondering how many times I would do that as as I spoke this evening. Um, it is a great privilege to be here. Um, as he mentioned, my name is Matt McDermott, and i just personally like to welcome you again to our community uh, worship service. Um, thank you, worship team, for preparing our hearts and, and just leading us to the throne room uh, of grace. Um, it is a neat opportunity to, to gather and, and to, to worship as one, just a really, just a small picture, just a, a really kind of small glimpse of what the throne room of heaven someday will be like when, when multitudes too, too numerous to count from, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will with one voice lift their voices and sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We have that to look forward to as, as Christians. And so as you're turning to Colossians 1, the, the theme this evening uh, as you have heard from Pastor Tim, is exalting his name together. And, and as you also heard from Pastor Tim, he read from, from Psalm 34, 3. Um, normally reads from the ESV, unless I missed it, it, it was a different version. Um, but if you read from the ESV, Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. You know, to magnify is an interesting thing. Because there's two ways that we can magnify things. There's a microscope, which basically takes something really, really small and kind of blows it up so that we can see it more clearly. That's not what we're doing here this evening. We're not coming and raising our voices as one and worshiping this God that we have to make look bigger. We're not magnifying God like a microscope tonight. No, tonight we're magnifying God like a telescope you see, what a, what a telescope does is it, it takes uh, these very, very large objects, which actually look really small to the human eye, and it makes, it makes them look as big as they are in reality. That's the kind of magnifying we're going to do this evening with, with who Christ is. Because, you see, uh, to, to, to make Christ look bigger, that would be impossible for us. But rather, our goal as Christians should be, should be to magnify Christ as a telescope magnifies to make him look almost as enormous as he is. Tonight I want to look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, a text that I think does that. Uh, but before we do, I am in need of desperate prayer of all the people you could have heard speak this evening. I am the least educated, I am the least trained, and I am certainly the least deserving, and, and so I am in greatly need of help. So would you go to the throne room of grace with me? Heavenly Father, we just praise you, God, for who you are. You are the sovereign king of all. God, I just pray that that message would resonate this evening. That in all things, you are preeminent. You are supreme. Over creation, over your church, over the hearts of those who you have elected, Lord. God, we just praise you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that covers our sins. God, I pray even now that you would just guard my words. Every, every word that comes out of my mouth, would it, would it be of you and not of me? I pray that the folks under my voice would, would not hear from a man, but would hear from your Holy Spirit this evening. And, and I just pray that you would open hearts to be receptive to the word. That, that folks would walk out of here this evening seeing you as preeminent, 
and loving you a little bit more today than they did yesterday. God, we love you and we trust you in this. And we, we ask these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And so Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I have one single goal this evening, just one thing that God has placed on my heart for you, and it's this. I want to stir up your affections for Jesus Christ. In light of his supremacy, and in light of who he is, and in light of what he has done, I want you to love him more this evening than when you walked in here. I want the supremacy of Christ to, to so consume you this evening that it drives your every thought, your every word, and your every deed. It's just that simple. I, I want you to love him more than when you walked in here. You see, in my house, my, my wife and my kids, we have a practice in my house that we don't use the word awesome to describe anything other than God. You see, that word sometimes gets thrown around to describe normal, everyday things like you know, like that meal was awesome, or, you know, that was an awesome movie, or that was an awesome game, or, or, or oh, look at that sports card, so awesome, or, or Captain America, he's so, he's so awesome. No, no, God is awesome, period. I mean, what other adjective is there in the English language to describe such grandeur, to describe this person, this thing that, that's awesome, then awesome? Nothing, that's it. It sits at the, the, the pinnacle of adjectives used to describe greatness. Therefore, in my house, it's reserved for the one who sits at the pinnacle of greatness, Jesus Christ. That, that caramel, vanilla, mocha latte from Avenue 209 is not awesome. It, it may be really, really good, as is most things there, but it's not awesome. Christ alone is awesome. Some of you have probably been Christians for a long, long time, and some of you may be under my voice, may not know Christ at all. But regardless of where you are in that spectrum, I pray this evening that your affections are stirred by the weightiness of our superior and awesome God, Jesus Christ. And so as we dig into our text, just a little background, just quickly, I don't want get, to get too hot and heavy with, with this, but, but basically Paul writes the book of Colossians from a prison cell in Rome. And in particular, he writes these six verses to refute the, the heresy in the church of Colossae concerning the denial of the deity of Christ. That is, that the incarnate Christ was both fully God and fully man. He, he wasn't half God and, and half man. No, he's 100% God and 100% man. And so the Apostle Paul from a prison cell in Rome, he's attacking this thing head on. And in verses 15 through 20, he gives 14 attributes of the supremacy of Christ. He gives 14 statements of the proof of the deity of Christ and, and, and really, as each one is kind of a sermon unto itself, uh, I just want to touch on each of them briefly. It would be really helpful if you have your, your Bibles open because we're going to kind of just uh, go through these a mile-high view. Uh, I don't want to be here till 9 o'clock. My wife told me I already have too many pages. Um, I told her I would talk fast. Um, and so beginning in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. He. Who is he? 
Well, if we go back to verse 13, we see the pronoun he refers back to the beloved son of the father. And we need to get that because our entire focus this evening is on the one whom this pronoun he describes. He is the son of God. He is Christ. He is Lord. He is Jesus. The the focus this evening is is not on me and, and as beautiful and lovely as you people are and you are. It's not on you either. The focus this evening is on Jesus. From the call to worship through the the worship through singing to the the, the preaching of his word, it's all about him. So many church issues arise when we start making church about me rather than he. And so friends, you're here this evening for one purpose, and you're here on this earth for one purpose, to glorify God. It's all about Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. The the Greek word for image is the one that we we actually derive our English word icon. It means copy of or likeness of. In other words, Jesus is the the perfect image of and in the very form of God who we know is invisible. Christ is fully God in every way. Hebrews 1.3 describes him as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of him. Jesus himself said to the Apostle Philip, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, now get this, it's not to say that, that Philip or anyone else for that matter ha- has seen God in all his glory. If you recall, Moses asked to, to see God in all of his glory. And, and what does God say? God says, to see me is to die. He says, to see my face is to die. He says, I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And, and Moses, I'll cover you with my hand as I, as I pass by. And I'll pull my hand away, and you'll literally see my backside, but to see my face is to die. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, to gaze upon the attributes of Jesus is to gaze upon the attributes of God the Father. God reveals himself to us through his son, Jesus. Reading on in verse 15, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now that may be weird that may sound weird when we first read that and we need to be very careful with this one because this is a verse that many people want to point to and say that jesus could not have always existed if indeed he was first born after all doesn't the idea of him being first born mean that there was a time when he wasn't born i'm glad you asked no it doesn't not here not in this context here firstborn is meant to signify a title of rank jesus ranks first and there is no close second. Paul is saying that that Jesus has the highest rank in all of creation. It it doesn't mean that he was numerically the first being created. It means that he is without equal. We we see this in in the word throughout the Bible, in Jewish culture, where where it spoke of the ranking son who would receive the inheritance. And, And if we need more proof that the firstborn son means rank and not numerical order of birth, Think of one of the most popular, most memorized verses in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. This, that, that calls him the only begotten son. How could he be the only begotten son if there were more sons to beget? You know what I mean? So firstborn here clearly speaks of the preeminence of Christ. It speaks to his position. He is the image of the invisible God and is the firstborn of creation. He is without equal. Nothing compares to him. The heavens declare the glory of God. The the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Let your affections be stirred by that this evening. Which leads well into verse 16, which says, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
Verse 16 is yet additional evidence that the word firstborn in verse 15 refers to rank as opposed to numerical order. For how could the one who created all things be created himself? You see, Paul clearly explains here that Christ was not created, but rather he is the creator, which makes him supreme above all angels and authorities. Why? Because he created them. Think about how, how superior you are to the, to the things that you create. Some of you probably make a really mean meatloaf. But think about how much higher you are than that meatloaf. It doesn't have emotions. It can't feel. Think of how much more sophisticated you are. There's no comparison. In the same way, yet infinitely greater, God is more superior to all things. He is above all things, for he made all things. Isn't it comforting to know that in the the midst of rising tensions between world powers and, and in a world where we have wars that seemingly don't end and, and all the political unrest in our own country and turmoil in our own country. Isn't it comforting to know that God is infinitely greater than all of that? God made those world powers. He made those authorities. He made those rulers. He made those dominions. And God is sovereign over them all. I host a a student prayer group at the high school where I teach, and I was reminded that God is infinitely greater by a humbling prayer of a 15-year-old girl. In light of the troubling times in the world, she prayed scripture. She prayed Psalm 2. Beginning in verse 1, she prayed this. Why do nations conspire and peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then she prayed verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Friends, our, our God is not puzzled, nor is he perplexed about the issues that we are facing in our country. He, he doesn't fear those countries that are, are most hostile to those that, that worship his name. Places like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya and Pakistan and Yemen. Our God laughs at them, not because they're funny, but because their efforts are futile. Friends, take heart this evening. I've read the last page of the Bible. Most of you have read the last pages of the Bible, and our God wins. Let that stir our affections for God this evening. Our God who sets up kings and disposes of kings, Daniel 2. Still in verse 16, it says, All things were created through him. How cool is that as God, Jesus created all things. It's part of the Godhead. He created all things. We see this again at the beginning of the Gospel of John, where we read that very familiar passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Finishing in verse 16, all things were created for him. Verse 16 is a, a great one, for we see that from Christ and through Christ and for Christ, all of creation was made. Boy, does that get to the heart of some of life's most asked questions. Who, who am I? Well, you were made in the image of God. You were made by God. Why am I here? You, you were made for God. You see, we were made in his image to glorify him. From Christ through Christ and for Christ. You know, if you recall, that, that sounds a lot like other scripture, that great doxology at the end of Romans 11, 
which I just love. It says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For, for who has known the mind of the Lord or, or who has been a, his counselor? Who can give him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Who has known the mind of our Lord? Who, who has been his counselor? Who can give him a gift that, that we can even begin to repay him? And the answer to every one of these rhetorical questions is no one. No one. Yeah, I think it'd be appropriate if we just pause on verse 16 for a moment and, and share with you just, just what was made through him and to him. And, and I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of God's creation, I immediately go to the sky particularly the night sky. In the words of David, he, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. If you've ever studied our universe, our universe is immense. It is absolutely huge. So we just can't fathom its size. And I'm a math teacher, so just allow me to talk numbers with you just for, just for a moment. I'll try not to bore you. I'll try to keep you on track here. But this is really, really interesting to me. So, so the one number you have to get your brain wrapped around right now is the speed of light. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. All right, get your brain wrapped around that. 186,000 miles every second is the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. At that speed, you could circle the Earth seven times in one second. All right, just to give that a little bit of perspective, seven times in one second at the speed of light, you could circle the Earth. And that's hard to imagine. Now, if we could travel the speed of light, we can't. I mean, I travel half the speed of smell. I'm not traveling the speed of light, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> if we could travel the speed of light to get from here to our moon, it would take something like 1.3 seconds, something like that. Traveling at the speed of light to get from here to the moon would take like 1.3 seconds, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Now, get your brain wrapped around this. To travel from Earth to the closest star, not our sun, but the closest star, I think it's called Alpha Centauri, Traveling at the speed of light would take four years. And that's the closest star in our universe. You see what that means? It means that the closest star, traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles every second, takes four years to get there, means that that star is over 25 trillion miles away, the closest star to us other than our sun. Get this, if you're not perplexed yet. To get from Earth to the other side of our Milky Way galaxy, traveling at the speed of light, takes 52,000 light years. Traveling at the speed of light. And that's our solar system. Scientists estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies out past ours. Simply amazing. Our God spoke, and it was. He said, let there be, and it was created. Let your affections be stirred this evening about this God. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This God who, who calls out the stars in a hundred billion galaxies, each by name, knows the very number of hairs that are on your head. Let your affections be stirred by that this evening. Back to our text, verse 17. Keep it moving. 
He is before all things. This is what, Je- this is what the Jews didn't understand. The idea that Jesus was somehow before all things. John chapter 8, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews were like, you're, you're not even 50 years old. You say you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was. You see, he existed before Abraham. He existed before creation. Therefore, he has dominion over it. Matthew chapter 28 confirms this. One of the last things Jesus says to his disciples is, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. See, God the Father has given Jesus absolute authority. Finishing verse 17, it says, in him all things hold together. So you've had your math lesson. Here's a little science lesson for you. Um, This is out of my league, so it'll be brief. Anyone who has passed a middle school science class knows that all objects are made of atoms, yeah? And and atoms are are comprised of like an electron orbiting around a nucleus, which is made up of of neutrons and protons. But but what's what's in a proton? Scientists have been researching this for decades. And and, and so what they found is a, a proton is made up of three quarks, and so what's in it, like, what's in the quark? What's the deal with the quarks? Well, inside the quarks is like this, this glue-like substance that they come up with this amazing name called gluons. Imagine that, right? But, but here's the interesting part. What, what they found, the, 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 the more and more they look into this, what, what holds this subatomic matter together, the more they learn about subatomic particles called gluons, the more the universe dis- seems to be made of nothing at all. I say they need to look no further than Colossians 1.17. In him, all things hold together. Perhaps the nothing at all that scientists are trying to find is ultimately the work of a supreme being who spoke into existence everything out of nothing. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. My comment here is short and sweet. If he isn't, leave if, if Christ isn't the head of your church body, you are laboring in vain. Christ is head of the church proper, the entire world population of believers, and he is head of the local church bodies as well. Does the pastor and other elders have leadership responsibilities? Absolutely they do, but in leading, they follow him. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Why, why is Christ the head of the church? Be, because he purchased it with his blood. Christ died for his church. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ has set apart his church, his people, his called out ones from the world. From the earliest beginnings of Acts chapter 2 to the present day, Christ has built his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Continuing in verse 18, it says he is the beginning. Notice again, it doesn't say Jesus had a beginning. It says he is the beginning. In the beginning, God And we find later in verse 18, right after it, he has no end. It says he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. You see, Lazarus was resurrected, as were others in the Bible, but they all died again. Christ died, but even death could not hold him, and now he lives. We serve a risen Savior this evening. Our God is not dead. He's alive. I love, I love, I love, I love John 10, 18. Jesus says this, no one takes my life from me. I'm laying it down. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Who, who among us, again, who among us has the authority to say that? And the answer is no one. 
He's the firstborn from the dead, for even death could not hold him. Christ has no beginning and he has no end. Let your affections be stirred this evening because we serve a living God. Wrapping up in verse 18, of all the 14 attributes, this is the one that ties them all together. In everything, he is preeminent. The the NIV says that in everything, he might have supremacy. Can can we just pause and reflect a moment on this? Because this is another just word of encouragement for us, I think. In in light of the fact that we, we, we turn on the evening news and or we pick up a newspaper and inevitably we, we, excuse me, we read the words of another mass shooting or um, another violent protest, another suicide bombing. We get the daily COVID number for the day or, or, or make it more personable. Maybe it's the, the cancer diagnosis. Maybe it's the, the struggling marriage. Maybe it's the job loss and that financial burden that comes with that. Friends, all of these, these heart-wrenching Events are reminders to us that we live in a fallen world. And, and there's no question that, that these tragedies are disheartening and they bring so many emotions and, and for, they really should for many reasons. But as sad as it is, can I just send some hope your way today? You see, for Christians, there, there's hope in situations such as these. There's hope so amazing that we don't need to despair. We don't need to burn with unrighteous anger over such injustices. Our hope this evening comes in the knowledge that God is still on his throne and he is in control. I can assure you that, that none, none of the things you hear on the 6 o'clock evening news has taken God by surprise. Our God is not shocked. Our God is not blindsided. He, he's not left scratching his head saying, I didn't see that one coming. Have you been tracking me this evening? Look at the end of verse 18. In everything, he is preeminent. He is supreme. He is above all things. There is nothing else to want. There is nothing else to know. There is nothing else to gain with this God. He's in control of all things, and he is completely and utterly self-sufficient. Our God doesn't need anything from us. He is not served by human hands. Every tree in the forest is his. He owns the cattle on 10,000 hills. Oh, that we would look at the troubles of this earth through the lens of our God's supremacy. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. Oh, that the risen living Christ, therefore, would come to us even now by his Holy Spirit and through his word and would reveal to us the supremacy of his knowledge that makes the Library of Congress look like a matchbox. And all the information on the internet looked like a little 1940s farmer's almanac. And quantum physics and and everything Stephen Hawking ever dreamed about seemed like first grade reading. The supremacy of his wisdom that has never been perplexed by any complication and can never be counted by the wisest of men. The supremacy of his authority over heaven and, and earth and hell without whose permission no man and no demon can move one inch, who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, so that none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, if you think the headlines in the news this week took Jesus by surprise, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Our God does not sleep. He does not slumber. He does not grow tired or weary. God is in total control of every second of every square inch of this universe. I like to think of it as God rules this universe with his proverbial feet propped up. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from this father's care. If God sovereignly controls such an insignificant thing as the death of a sparrow, he is surely aware of your greatest need at this moment. I can assure you of that. God knows, God sees, and God cares. And right now, right at this very moment, he is working all things for your good and his glory. But what you're going through may not feel good. Is that what that verse says in Romans 8? But what you're going through is for your good and his glory. His ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. Perhaps some of you are, would remember J. Vernon McGee. He kind of had the high-pitched voice on the radio. Pastor McGee once said, and I quote, Now this is God's universe, and he does things his way. Now you might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Friends, you don't have a universe. And as Pastor McGee sarcastically alluded to, you don't have a better way either. The supreme God of the universe holds the whole world in the palm of his hand. He, he sees the, the end from the beginning. He, he, he transcends time itself. He doesn't even exist in time. He exists in eternity. He's infinite. And so what are we to fear? What are we worried about? God knows because he's already there. Let, let your affections for him be stirred by that this evening. Hurrying through. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul here is addressing, again, the heretical belief that, that Jesus was somehow not fully God and, and he didn't possess the divine attributes and powers of God. Verse 20, he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. To reconcile means to, to change or to exchange. That's what Christ did for us. Christ restored us to a right relationship with a holy God by his finished work on the cross. An exchange was made for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. The, the, the just for the unjust. And not only does he reconcile us to himself, but ultimately he will reconcile all things in the universe to himself. And this doesn't imply that, that somehow all people will be, will be saved, no. But rather, it, it's, it's that all people will ultimately submit one day, every knee will bow. And one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Which brings me to my last attribute of the supremacy of Christ, the end of verse 20. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. How does he reconcile all things to himself? By making peace with his blood. You know, as, as great as the deed of creation was, the idea that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself is far greater. I, well, I love the way the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson put it, and I quote, Great was the work of creation, but greater still the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In one, there was a speaking of a word. In the other, there was the shedding of blood. How, how great a sacrifice that the holy righteous, just God of the universe would, would look upon us as sinners and, and seeing nothing good in us, send his only begotten son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, a, a life that we couldn't live and to die this death that we couldn't avoid. In the greatest act of humility that will ever be, this Jesus who was and is supreme above all things, absorbed the wrath of God in our place. Just think about this, this Jesus who sustains all things, who holds all things together, was giving breath to the soldiers, was making their heart beat as they scourged him. 
This Jesus was giving breath to the soldier who pushed the the crown of thorns on his brow. This Jesus who who sustains all things was sustaining the men who, who led him to Calvary's mountain and who drove nails through his hands and his feet. At the same time, he's given their heart rhythm. He could stop it at any moment. But he doesn't. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever might believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This Jesus died in your place. Friends, you can go outside on most any given night and marvel at the, at the sky and, and ponder the infinite ends of the universe. God's handiwork is all around us, and it is breathtaking. But greater still is to look at the once lost sinner in the chair beside you and to look at what their life was like, to hear their testimony. If you want a real fellowship in your church body, get get beyond the superficial, hi, how are you, good, how are you, passing by, and and go and have a cup of coffee and, and share testimonies about how this God has changed your life who has redeemed you from the pit, who has taken you from death to life. The greatest news in all of history is that the supreme God of the universe has reconciled us to himself through the bloodstained cross of Jesus Christ. Let your affections for him be stirred this evening. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we just stand in all of you. God, we cannot comprehend your creation, but greater still, we, we, we cannot comprehend the grace that you have lavished upon us. Why you would send your own son to die in the place of sinners. God, we can't understand that, but God, I, we just praise you for it. Let our lives be, be all out worship because of it. Not that we can somehow repay you. Not that it's some weird form of works, righteousness. No, God, we, it's all about you. It's all about Jesus. God, we praise you for him this evening. May our lives reflect the lofty calling to which you've entrusted to us. We ask these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.